This I swear, that when we go into battle, I will be the first to set foot on the field, and I'll be the last to step off. You get out of college, and you come and you work here. How much did they first pay you to give up on your dreams? 27 grand a year. And when were you going to stop and come back and do what makes you happy? How about you and I be honest about what each of us want out of this? You're smart, you get what we're trying to do here. Make an example for the younger guys. Be a leader. I bet that most of you, in fact, I know that all of you, have had to take on a leadership role sometime in your life. And when you think about it, not once, but often, and most likely daily. I'm not talking about leading a country or even enterprise. Say the exception, not the rule, but the day-to-day -day leadership of your life and your career. Parents raising children, those same children playing in a park or sports field, getting involved in a community project, a congregation, planning an event. Thousands of more activities require someone to take the lead. Even the family member charged with planning the annual vacation, or when you arrive, the one with the best map reading or navigational skills, they lead to some degree. And think of work, the bus driver leading his passengers through crowded streets, not only with his hands on the wheel, but with advice and the ability to calm situations and make mission-critical decisions involving safety and security. The general contractor leading a freshly assembled team of workers and the carpenter helping an apprentice learning the ropes. Business meetings, sales presentations, creative collaborations, emergency rooms, fire stations, firefighters on site all require leadership. Influencing, guiding, prioritizing, motivating, refining, aligning, deciding, coaching, mentoring, affirming, and firming are all leading. My essential question to you is if leadership is so prevalent in our society and our lives, do we spend enough time working to evaluate how we lead and to improve our abilities? Or some people just born to lead and others to follow. My guest today is Steve Tappan. Steve is a world-renowned thinker on this very topic, leadership. He's a global leadership coach to CEOs, entrepreneurs, political figures, and cultural icons. He's a co-founder and CEO of BIG and co-authored The Awareness Code and The Secrets of CEOs. He's also hosted the BBC World Television series, CEO Guru. He's an author, philanthropist, and a big thinker. And what he'll offer you in this interview will change the way you think about leadership and more importantly, how you lead. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Steve Tappan, welcome to uh, Chatter That Matters. Yeah, hi, Tony. Great to see you. Let's get the question you must have been asked 10,000 times in your life out of the way. Are leaders born or are they made? So my sense, Tony, is that um, is that leaders are made, and um, I think it starts with, with your upbringing. You know, with your when you, when you grow up with your parents, and that starts to shape your personality, and then and then and then basically you grow through that all through your life experiences. So you might get somebody who's a, a very tall person who could make a great basketball player, but their ability to actually lead, I think, is shaped from their upbringing and through their life and how they react to situations and how they learn from that. So let's talk about your upbringing, because you talk about your mother as being sort of the heart and soul of the family, and your dad's so inspiring because he was this maverick entrepreneur. So paint the picture for my listeners about what was life for uh, like a young Steve like. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, so my mum was at the heart of the family. My mum was, you know, absolutely at the heart of our family. And my mum would say to me, like, Steve, from the age of one, she had me reading the Financial Times, you know, the UK paper. And she would say to me, look, Steve, you can do it. Whatever it is, you can do it. And she just sort of ingrained that into me. And I've sort of had that as a, as part of my, my life, you know, my life story. So that's really come from her. Um, I also she really did care and love family. So that was really important. Well, my dad was like, um, was, was much more of an entrepreneur and, um, the, he, 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 he loved aviation. So he, he, he started an air show off, which was like 100 people in a field and he had some model aeroplanes. But he grew it over 15 years and it became the Yorkshire Air Show. 25,000 people, you know, like amazing planes and he'd sit there with a bottle of wine and commentate. And he he did that all with, with you know, in a community of, fam- of friends, you know, he was just like that. So I think I probably had a bit of both of them, a bit of my, my dad's sort of zany connection, meet with people and a bit of my mum's just drive, you can do it. When I was reading your backstory, I also got Promising Athlete. I mean, this, you started with rugby, which is obviously a sport everybody plays over there, but your real passion was football, or we call it in North America, soccer. Tell me a little bit about what you learned about yourself on that pitch that compared to maybe what your mum was teaching at age one to read the Financial Times. So it was interesting, Tony, because... As, uh, early on, I was the sort of kid who had asthma and hay fever and allergies. And um, in my in the smaller school, I couldn't even get in the small school soccer team, you know, so I struggled a bit. And I went to a rugby school and a rugby was quite posh. You know, rugby was for the sort of those sorts of people. So um, I played a bit of rugby, but I absolutely loved soccer. So on a, on a, a break at lunchtimes, I'd play soccer. I loved it. I was passionate. I loved it. And I found within a year, that I was like one of the best players in the school. I just completely changed because I was doing what I loved. And then, and then what happened is, is we joined um, all these rugby playing people. We joined a soccer team and it was the worst soccer team in, in the local area that they, they, they conceded 244 goals in 24 games. So most games they lose 10 one, you know, it's like terrible, but we joined and we all gave our best and we were fully in. And there was a, a great story where we played the sort of the league leaders and we were winning 2-0. And, uh, and, then, and then near the end, they were, they were all over us. We were, then they got a goal and they got another goal. So it was 2-2. And, and we, we, you know, they were, all, were, gonna, were they going to score again? And, and one of my teams said, Steve, we've just got to hold on. I said, no, that's not hold on. Let's see if we can still win it. Let's see. Let's give it a go. Give it our best. So he, anyway, he ran up the field. He crossed it back to me and I smashed it top corner and we won 3-2. And that was this idea of, you know, always give your best. Never, don't, don't settle for, you know, you know, for mediocrity. And I think that was really, really, you know, give your best and you can do it. You know, so it was, that, that was really how it sort of unfolded a bit in, in the soccer career. You know, you're one of the world's, leading authorities on leadership and emotional intelligence. Back then as a kid, were you just playing soccer or did you start understanding the nuances between a good coach and a bad coach, a a good parent and a bad parent? I I really uh, effectively coached myself for a long time. And then then I started to work with some semi-professional coaches and, uh, and, you know, some of them represented uh, football league clubs you know but but my, but my sense tony is that is that um the awareness code has taught me that, that 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 you have you have good and bad coaches and those coaches bring their own life experiences you know their 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 ideas and theories the psychological uh, abilities and 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 the ones that that are better they come in from higher awareness they're positive and they aren't just 
win at all cost. You know, they 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 want to make real connections with their with their uh, the people that they're coaching and transformational changes, and they know how to collaborate as well. And so I think that the better coaches are ones that can help a client really get to their best and, and help them connect in and work in fellowship within the sport. So let's take this entire first part of the interview and compress it back to, as you said, so much of this happens in the your early days, those formative days. What advice can you give to parents out there who maybe want to live vicariously through their children or, or have ambitions or aspirations that are out of set with the passion you found moving from rugby to soccer? What advice can you give them to provide those kids that foundation? Parents need to think about the children and, and recognize that each child's motivated in different ways. You know, some need a sense of family. You know, some of them need constant praise. You know, some of them need their weaknesses to be pointed out. You know, some react because they're hypersensitive to their weaknesses being pointed out. So I think parents are the early leaders and they need to work out how to read each child with patience by really learning, really learning what the, through their witness mind and really learning how to awake their wisdom mind to help them be successful. And basically, Tony, is in the book, we talk about thinking mind, which is what many people work on. They want this. They don't want this. The witness mind is the ability to really observe without judgment and really witness something at a deep level. And that's what I think that the parents need to be able to do with their children to really understand their child. And then the wisdom mind is like understanding what the highest calling of, of your child could be, you know, of yourself, and then really trying to do something that would really make a big difference for them. And the book you're referencing, obviously, is the Awareness Code. That's correct, yeah. I think entrepreneurs are are really focused around cash flow and growing their businesses and creating value and feeling that they know right, they know the best way forward. So it's sometimes hard for them to sort of invest in themselves. But also I think the other thing is that many entrepreneurs, they have the capacity. So they're, you know, they're, they're charged and they've got frustrations and they're stressed. So it's very hard for them to be aware enough to think about the need to develop themselves. So you're saying they're time poor? Time poor, yeah. Mm. My guest is TV personality, global speaker, author, and leadership guru, Steve Tappan. So, Steve, what did you study at university? I mean, you got to a pretty high level uh, on the football pitch, but obviously school became the next part of that journey. What, what did you study and why? So, first of all, I didn't do a degree at university. Now, I was planning to go, but I got a job with ICI, who were like the biggest chemical company in the world at the time. And I thought, well, if, if I was going to get a job after a degree, that's the sort of company I'd want to join. Then later on, I did do a master in business. So, And I originally became a qualified accountant. And I was a terrible accountant, absolutely terrible. But you know, that was the one thing my mum said, just do one thing, just have some security. Then after that, you can do whatever you want. Steve, you, you crush it at ICI, management trainee. But at age 34, you decide to follow in your father's footsteps and become an entrepreneur. But along that journey, you somehow connect back with the chairman of ICI. How did that come about? When I was in ICI, he was like 15 levels above me, Tony, you know, in, in the hierarchy. So I, I wrote him a letter. You're an amazing leader. You know, there's very few truly inspiring global leaders. And we'd love you to come and speak at one of our events. And then I read up about all these comments he used to make. And one of them is that small companies shouldn't spend the money till they've got it. So I then said to him, look, we'd love you to speak, but we haven't got much money, so we can't pay you for at least three years. And I got a call the next day, you cheeky devil. Uh, I'll do it. 
but you pick up my expenses. So he, he saw the, the sort of the funny side of it and, and he, he joined up and, and he was amazing, a wonderful man. He was about integrity. When I'd meet him, Tony, you know, I, I was like a, a, an entrepreneur running a company and I was like pressurized with clients and people and I rushed to meet him. I'm all set to download all my issues and he's there, Steve, do you want a tea or coffee? Do you want poached eggs or scrambled eggs? You know, he'd have all these things just to settle me down and bring me back in. Look, at the end of the day, Steve, it sounds like A or B is the choice. Or in this case, look at C, D and E. So he'd give me two or three practical ways forward. And that was just all that I needed. But underneath it was always integrity. You know, he was also a realist as well. Um, but also he had fun and he was a very likable person, you know, and I loved him. He was, a, he was a great man. So tell me a little bit about Eden Genius, corporate venture consulting firm. You're age 34 and you decide you're going to go out now and provide leadership advice. And it sounds like to people much older and much more experienced than you. So how did that all come about and where did you get the confidence to do that? So Eden Gene was Eden and Gene, like Eden, the Garden of Eden. And a lot of it for big companies is how to grow because most companies were growing about 1%. And we felt that companies had really interesting assets like client bases and technology that you could basically create new business offerings. As we set the company up, you know, we had a lot of success. We were one of the best small companies from the Management Consultancy Association. But what was funny, Tony, is, is I actually started going to CEOs much earlier than that. So, so in my mid-20s, I was uh, focused on meeting CEOs. I just thought that's my highest calling is to meet CEOs and transform companies. And there was one company that you, your viewers probably be interested in. There was this, this guy, he, he ran a FTSE 100 company, six foot five, Scandinavian, and he used to throw people out of his office because they didn't give him any, any new insight. I rehearsed it all and, and I really researched one part of his business and I was ready to go. Turned up at the meeting, sat down, you know, sat down at the table and he looked at me and he walked to the other end of the boardroom table, was maybe 21 feet away, you know, really long distance away. And he said, before we start, every day I have people coming to my office giving me advice. And in my view, they have no right. That was the opening line. So what do you do in that situation? You know, and I said, well, there's no post eggs <laughs> offer here. <laughs> no poached eggs. I said, well, why, you know, why do you get so many people giving you advice? And he goes, what right have you to give me advice? You look about 25 years old. I said, well, actually, I'm 28, but I think I've got a sense about how you could grow that business. And then he put his head down and he burst into tears. And he talked about the problems he had in the company, how he couldn't grow it, the management team. And that, for me, was like a really big opening that you can step into any situation. And if you hold, you know, you do the work, you, 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 know, you, you have great insight and you hold yourself, that you can work with any CEO of any age. So you're in your mid-20s, you're working full-time, you're meeting CEOs. That's what manifests itself into starting your own consultancy. Did you ever feel as an imposter or were you just so confident that you could come into any situation, even someone sitting 22 feet away going, "What? how dare you come in and you look like you're a teenager? Coach my listeners to that because that's that's a switch that not everybody has. Well, if you remember that it came back to my mother, which is Steve, you can do anything, then my highest calling was I'm going to work with CEOs and transform the companies. Every situation, I'd freshly bake it. So, you know, which what was the industry that we're in? Was Were they in turnaround problems? Were they in growth mode? You know, I'd work out the mode they were in. I'd look at the management team, and I'd, you start to form conclusions quicker and quicker about the issues. And then you just learn, test and learn as you go along, yeah? And, and it just developed from there. Your mum told you you could do anything, but that also turned into you trying to do everything. Seven days, workaholic. 
and you burn out at this company. So that's a young age to kind of sort of hit a wall. What led to that? I was so mission driven. I literally, in my mid-30s, I'd have like five lattes a day, big lattes. I'd have two or three Diet Cokes. And, and so I was filling my body full of junk. And at the same time, I was literally like going to China every six weeks, traveling to four cities, meeting CEOs all the time. So literally what was happening as my body was under junk, I was under tremendous stress. It just it came too much for me. And what actually happened, Tony, was I was running an event in America uh, called Women of Inspiration, helping inspire women. And I, and I flew back via Seattle and I came into England and I started having some soup and I felt that I just couldn't just couldn't concentrate. And my partner at the time, she looked at me and she said, you're going to have to go to hospital because I think my mouth was sloping down. You know, like in many hospitals, you go into casualty and you might wait for four hours. They were straight through with me. And so literally, as I walked through casualty, my legs collapsed. The doctor's there and the doctor was looking at me. And then the doctor said, you're having a stroke. And in that moment, my hand, I couldn't move my hand, nor could I move my foot. So I wasn't sure whether that was it in terms of my hand and foot movement. Tony, I remember in that moment, I just felt I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. You know, just breathe a few times. It settled, you know, after about an hour. And then they realized I had an irregular heartbeat, that that was the cause of it all. And that was then the trigger for, actually, I need to change my life. I mean, being a lead singer of a very successful firm, it is addictive. You know, entrepreneurs never turn it off. How did you find a way to, to create a balance that still fed your passion and pursuit, but at the same time, let your body heal. Addiction is one of the, is, is low awareness. Yeah. And, and, and so what, what I had to do is the first instance is to recognize that you're addicted, recognize that I couldn't not go to a CEO meeting. If there was a choice, I'd, I'd, I would go to the meeting at any time. I, you know, I work with an awareness code therapist to help me realize that life was not just about CEOs. You know, I needed to have a, a broader life, a more balanced life. So you take a sabbatical in 2007, you get your priorities straight, but it almost sounds like you become a repeat offender. Um, I had my stroke and then I met Wayno. You know, Wayno is, is my co-author. All my life, Tony, I've always believed in fellowship. Right? I've always been a fellowship person from the soccer days and, and the ICI days. He, he was just different level to anyone that I've met. So, so I was CEOs and global change, and he was the human being, and he'd done like 34,000 one-to-ones by his early 60s. So he was just amazing, and then we started to work together. We talk about awareness. You say, you know, how are you feeling, Tony? Well, I feel good or not so good, or you might mention a couple of emotions, but we felt what was missing is there was no periodic table for human awareness. We were in America, we were in Europe. We worked with the Chinese, you know, uh, on the, on their awareness. We worked in Africa. And what we did is we kept basically working on it to say, what's the lowest level of human awareness, you know, and what's the highest level of human awareness? And we distilled it down into 10 levels and 100 tiles. So now people can literally have got like a periodic table where they can work out what the low awareness is, you know, if they're feeling frustrated or they're feeling anxious, and we can help them work through that. And then we describe how you can work in high awareness now. You know, in the last 10 years, people have been really excited about going from good to great. But we thought we could define incredible and also beyond incredible. We return Steve Tapping goes from being a successful entrepreneur and managing work-life balance to unlocking the leadership code and gaining worldwide attention for his book, The Awareness Code. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. In this world of uncertainty, there's never been a greater need for individuals and organizations to lead with integrity and purpose. 
A big shout out to RBC for investing their intellectual and financial capital to help forge that path. Whether it's investing in Olympians, the arts, upskilling today's youth for tomorrow's jobs, or leading the way with climate change. Leadership matters to RBC. With my co-author Wayne O'Linton, we've written a book that we feel can be radically transformative for the awareness or consciousness of humanity, and it's called The Awareness Code. The code can be used to help people come out of their lower levels of consciousness and create a space to build a new level of human consciousness into your being. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest is TV personality, global speaker, author, and leadership guru, Steve Tappan. So on your Rolodex are some of the top leaders, political, uh, non-for-profit, for-profit. But for small business owners, what advice can you give them in terms of, or even just the individuals, about how they could apply the awareness code? Tell, tell us a little bit about the book, and if someone's to purchase it, how should they approach it to get the most out of it? As you said, we've, we've, we've created this awareness code. There's a hundred tiles of awareness. So the lowest level is self-loathing, you know, which is close to suicide. And the higher levels is around incredible and 100 is the highest level of awareness beyond incredible. A lot of people have high awareness, which is great. But our, our sense is that 99.999% of people have low awareness, exactly what it is or how to work through it. So the idea of it is there's 60 tiles of low awareness, which really, in other words, we've, we're distilling the ego into 60 parts that people can now fully understand. So you've got to be really honest with yourself about where you are in terms of your lowest awareness. And so it might be that never enough is your lowest tile, but it, it, you have to then identify never enough and, and where did it come from? And then we, we help you work through it either with a, a awareness code therapist or with an app. So the idea of it is you work for your lower tiles so they're not in your life. So you're not carrying stress or despondency or lifelessness and you're just all the time above 60, which is the higher tiles. So 60 to 99 are the higher tiles, and that's the ability to step into any situation. So in other words, you've got to be positive, you've got to have conviction, you've got to be fully in. You know, we can get many leaders to that level, but now we're, we're training people to be open, and that means they've got to be receptive. They've got to be able to witness things so much better and use their witness mind. They've got to be able to connect with other people at a much deeper level and collaborate. And then the, the level of the eight is the ability to know what your highest calling is in life, work in fellowship, and have complete integrity. And we talk about integrity in, in every second, Tony. You know, you, you can't have any gaps in your integrity. So for us, integrity is, is, is that honesty in every second and finding the win-win in every situation. And then Wayno has really defined the level of incredible. Incredible people aren't the people who are, who are typically on the, the front page of Forbes. You know, incredible leaders are very grateful. They love their life. They're very sincere. You know, in the talk tonight, we're talking, you know, you could talk about what's going well, not what's not going well. Devoted, you know, like to their practices of becoming incredible. Compassionate. You know, they're commercial, but compassionate. They give back and they do extraordinary things. So we're starting to define incredible. So what we, we, we do is encourage readers to look at 60 to 99 and say, where would you really love to be as a leader? And the book defines exactly what it is and how, how you can achieve that. Part of the hypothesis is that we're all leaders. Sometimes we lead as a parent, 
times we might lead on the sports field. There's times we might lead just because we happen to be the person that knows how to camp better than others and we lead through our currency. So what I was fascinated about was that of these sort of all these emotional traits, when you talk to over 150 CEOs, because I think that, that Hollywood has created this romanticized version of the CEO living with, you know, the trappings of wealth and the big office and sipping tea all day and really enjoying life and happiness. You found quite the opposite, that a lot of CEOs were in fact unhealthy. Majority of CEOs overwork. Yeah, they work about 120% of their capacity. They struggle to, to have a, a, a meaningful and loving family life. You know, many of them talked about getting divorced, but didn't have the time to get divorced. You know, this is incredible conversations. So I feel that, that we've got the situation where the CEOs are overextended. There isn't also one way of being a CEO. You know, I feel that there's actually different types of CEOs. So what I discovered is there's seven or eight different types of CEOs who actually do the CEO's job very, very differently. And then the idea was then how do you best support one of those to be at their best? Is the idea to change if somebody's a certain type of CEO to move them to another area or the type set they are is just finding a way to improve on it? You might get a commercial executor CEO, right? So they're, they're, they're really about winning. Yeah, they really know the metrics of their organization. But often they don't know how to look after the culture or they don't know how to innovate. So what we do is we make them aware of that. And then we'd see if that they could make the shift or that they'd bring in someone else who could balance that up in, in fellowship with them. If you get them to bring someone in, and I always say this to even to small business owners, don't hire yourself. Hire somebody that complements what you do, that they can add additional value. But it's it's tough sometimes to put value in it because you've never seen the world that way. So again, your CEO might be good at growth, but lousy at innovation. How do you coach them if they bring in somebody that is exceptional in that area to value it and to support and encourage it versus maybe even fear it or be resentful it's not them? If I give you an honest answer is often the CEOs, they really struggle with the hiring to hire the right pe people because they naturally want to create somebody who's more like them. And what we try and encourage them to do is to, is to create a fellowship. You're going to have to be able to connect with this person. You know, you've got to be able to connect with them. You've got to be able to trust them. But they, they need to bring something that's going to be very, very different to you. And therefore, you need to value it. And, and really, what we train them, Tony, is to ask them to ask better questions. So that sometimes they default that they think they have to know the answer, but they don't. Actually, they've just got to ask the right questions of that person. The other piece now is that CEOs have got to really empower people at a new level or they're going to lose them. Well, let's talk about this great resignation and losing them because it's not just happening at the CEO level of multinationals. The person managing the local McDonald's is struggling to attract, retain and keep talent. So what advice can you give to people that to focus more about empathy and empowerment and the emotional skills versus just necessarily, you know, delivering to just shareholder values versus maybe sharing the values with others. As you say, the great resignation, I think, is, is a message there, which is you haven't been successful in leading, developing, and taking care of your people. You have to now really understand your people at a much more deeper level. You've got to connect with them in a meaningful way. And, you've got to, and then you've got to develop some freshly baked solutions so, so they are motivated, so they are developed, so they are feel careful and, and, and they feel that they get the, what they want from their lives, you know, a more balanced life. So I feel that, the, that it's the start of, of, of big changes. One of the ways you're trying to help them address it is you co-founded BIG, which is a think tank of some of the top leaders in the world. Mm. So t tell me a little bit about BIG and why it not only matters to the people that are part of it, but why, why you hope it'll matter to humanity. So big is the Beyond Incredible group. 
And the Beyond Incredible tile is the highest level of human awareness. And what it means is, is Beyond Incredible people will be able to do profound things in the world. They'll be able to u- unite communities and countries, be able to do things that people would see as impossible, you know, breathtaking and miraculous. And so what we're doing is we're training them to be that type of leader. Now, before you can become Beyond Incredible, you have to work through your lower awareness here yeah, that we talked about before. So the, the journey is still to work through your lower tiles, you know, and make sure you've, you're not despondent or stressed or overly controlling or egotistical. And you've got to be able to, to be at the higher levels of awareness. And then what we've done is we, we've created a group of 10 people so far. Some of them are future political leaders. We then try to find the, the top CEOs. So for example, um, one of the top CEOs is Steve Foots from Croda. Uh, Croda has been the fastest growing British company over 25 years, and they created the ingredients for the COVID vaccine. These are the sorts of leaders who want to then do also beyond incredible things in the world. You know, people are worried about AI and the impact on mankind. So these projects, Tony, are absolutely amazing projects. We're helping these people get into a state where, first of all, they can be solid in any situation confidence that they can go after these projects and make it happen. And we start to frame it with them so they're clear about their highest calling and then connect them with other leaders. Ten of them so far. Um, I'm in a number of conversations globally uh, with another probably 20 or 30 people. And our goal will be to create 100 people. So imagine it, Tony, it would be future political leaders. It would be the award-winning CEOs. It would be amazing uh, younger entrepreneurs. We've got some amazing women in that group. And the idea of it is we want to lift everyone's awareness and potentially each of them can do a project that can change the world and they're all connected together. That's amazing. I also want to just shift the spotlight to China because for decades now, you've been very involved in China. The Western world has painted China as you know the one to watch, the one to fear. Give us your perspective of what leadership is like in China and why China is part of the human race. So I, I ended up going to China just by luck. I was in I was in America and two Chinese people came up to me. I was speaking at an American conference. So you've got to come to China. There's these leaders of massive businesses who haven't been developed. So I went across to China, met some very preeminent leaders. And I, and I did this for a few years, but I, I was still doing it as a Westerner. I then met a guy who, um, a disabled guy. He basically was running Harvard and he connected me in with the Chinese leaders. The Chinese leaders are actually all connected together at a really deep level. They're all in a club and it's called the China Entrepreneur Club. And there's like 52 of them, founder of Lenovo. It's, you know, the CEO of, Ale- you know, uh, Jack Ma. It's the, the CEOs of Foson. So it's all the biggest companies. They all basically meet and, and learn together. They visit each other's company. Each year they go globally to visit a country together. And, and I was able to become the first Westerner to be closely connected to them. So I wrote a book called The Secrets of Chinese CEOs on how to develop them. And what I discovered, Tony, is like the Chinese are just so different to the Western leaders. You know, like the Chinese leaders will think not three years business plan, they think 100 years plus exceptionally entrepreneurial. They won't even decide on who they're going to meet the week ahead. You know, they're going to see what's the most exciting meeting to do. And they aren't into processes. You know, they don't, they don't like processes at all. The Chinese leaders have had a, um, an amazing sort of 30-year period of growth. And then clearly there's, there's a lot of challenges that around China at the moment and the Chinese leadership. My sense is that many of the Chinese leaders are exceptionally talented people. And some of them have the ability to definitely lead global companies. So you learned from 
studying the Chinese and brought them a lot of value. Why do we have the biases in North America not to open our mind to see that there might be some incredible learning to apply in our society? And what I love what you said is the sense of a hundred year out, but very entrepreneurial. To, to most people, that's tension. How do we bring that in? Because I see our societies, you know, the G7 becoming very paralyzed. It's almost like we're running in cement with bureaucracy and process and the heavy hand of the government. Where can we open our mind to the fact that what's happening over there is not to be feared, but potentially some of it to be embraced? I'm, I'm not the person to comment on the American <laughs> government or the CEOs, but, but I feel that, that if you think of America being the largest country and China becoming the larger country, there needs to be a collaboration between them. People who can be very good bridges, you know, bridges at the governmental level, bridges at the CEO level. And, and that's really been a lot of my focus. You know, so so I've been there as that sort of bridge. So, so I used to bring groups of CEOs over with me when normally there, there wouldn't be, there'd be very few American or European leaders there. So I feel that there's a case for more and more people who are bridges who can be, who can, who can really understand the Western and the Eastern mind together. The pillars of your fellowship, if I have it right, is trust and integrity. And I would suggest that both are lacking right now between the East and the West. I mean, that bridge has got to be built on on material that right now doesn't exist. It's gonna take some great leadership, great fortitude, and probably a lot of time. But yeah, I think you'd have to imagine that, you know, we need to really have high awareness leaders in, in, all, in, in all of those fields who can, as you say, connect together, collaborate together with integrity. And, and we need some people to start to, to do that more and more. I often get asked the question, am I just a CO type and that's it for me forever? I actually see that CEOs do evolve. So I take Richard Branson. When he started, he was a real entrepreneur, you know, PR hungry entrepreneur, Virgin Records and so on. And over time, he's moved on to be more of a missionary with more of a world aspect, looking at the boundaries of mankind. So he's evolved through time. And I think there's definitely the opportunity to evolve your CEO type through decades. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is TV personality, global speaker, author, and leadership guru, Steve Tappan. As we wrap up this interview, I just there was an article that I uncovered when I was doing my research, and it was called Wow, almost like a, a riff from a, a rock and roll songwriter. He just put it out just saying how important it is to make a first impression. Did give my listeners a sense of uh, the essence of that article and, and why do you feel it matters so much? So, so if I was meeting a CEO, I'd be very present before the meeting, bring to life my story, a bit about who I am, you know, a bit, a bit about my history, connect with them and just try and understand their story and where they're coming from. I take them on a journey, Tony. I'll go into their business performance you know, with some sort of questions, neutral questions, but very, very direct questions going deeper and deeper to really get into the truth of how their business is going or not performing. Get them to talk about the future. And then I'd be ready to go with three or four different options that may be more ambitious or more exciting with the CEO to really stretch them about their ambition in the future. And then I'd go into the management team. Tell me about your management team. But on a good day, tell me about your management team. On a bad day, I'd go deeper and deeper to give them to be open about have they got a fellowship? Are they a controlling leader or can they work in fellowship? And then I'd go in to show them the awareness code and get them to talk about their lower and high awareness. And at the end of it, they've had an experience where it's like, oh my God, what, you know, my business has been challenged. I've got a new future. There's a, some difficult questions in my management team. And I can see the opportunity to address my awareness. Small business entrepreneurs have got to have their equivalent of that. So they can come in, be present, 
not be overawed by the bigger company, and then really create some value for the person. Final question, and I know you have a lot of runway. Actually, I'm going to give you two questions. First, is your mom still with you? No, unfortunately, she passed away. And when she passed away, did she know that lesson she said you can do editing you applied in your life? Did she realize just what a torch she lit? What was interesting, Tony, is when my mum died, she had um, ovarian cancer. So I used to go and see her every weekend and I had a chat with her and my daughter. And as, as I left, she held my hand for a longer time. But I could see that she was worried, obviously worried about her death. But I, I was conscious I had to go and work with a Russian oligarch. So anyway, I, I went, and this could have been one of the biggest mistakes. I went to Russia and I got a call on the Monday saying, your mum's going to pass really soon. You've got to get back. So I flew back got back and my mum was still alive. Her breath was really laboured and I was there with my dad and my sister and so on. And then what I remember about my mum, it's just so amazing. She, um, she sat there in bed and she's like, you're literally going to have a last breath. And she literally sat up and looked at us. Her eyes were quite dilated and she just looked up and she laid down and she just died. And that for me was an amazing moment, Tony, because I then went over to my mum and I could see that her corpse was like just a corpse. Like the spirit of my mum had gone to a higher place. And that for me was really important because I felt that there is life, you know, that the spirit goes to another level, you know, and a great person. And, and I feel that, that, that she's still with me, you know, in terms of myself and with my family. And so um, I hope that she, uh, she can see, you know, we're practicing what we preach. I've never told this story, but when my mum was dying, we went to see her in the hospital. She had uh, breast cancer that just took over her body. And she was lying there, heavy breathing. She suddenly stood up straight back, looked at us and fell back. And she died that night. And I had a dream uh, of her a couple of days later, like a dream like I've never had. And she's eating a tuna fish sandwich. She hated fish because she was put in a convent as a kid. And Friday nights was fish night. I said, mom, what are you eating? She said, a tuna fish sandwich. I said, you, you hate tuna fish. And she goes, up here, I love everything. <laughs> and, and, and I always said, you know, that was uh, because it was so clear and so different, that the same thing. With all you're doing, and I'm not saying that you, you need a statue, but, you know, when I think about Drucker and I think about Porter and I think about some of the great people that advance leadership, how do you want to be remembered? When I lay down for the last time and reflect on my life, I've done everything that I could have done in my life that I've loved deeply. I've left others with more awareness than they had before. And what people say about me is not a driving force for me. They may actually hate me for pointing out that they've been below 60, you know, but I planted a seed about how they become more aware, helped create some incredible leaders. Now, if you're asking me jokingly, should I have a statue? Well, Leeds United is my football team that I love. And at Leeds United's ground, there's a, there's a man called Billy Bremner, who my mum used to love. And he had ginger hair like my mum. And he was a, such a fighter. He would do anything for Leeds. And he's a picture of him with, with scarves going like this. So I'd just like to have maybe a, a small statue next to him. And, it would, and, and my, underneath it, it would say, um, uh, marching on together in fellowship. That's, that's, that's <laughs> fabulous. You know, Steve, I always end my show with my three takeaways. And um, the first one is almost what we were ending the conversation on going, I don't want for anything. When I was listening to you describe your life before the stroke, you wanted a lot. You wanted validation. You wanted success. You wanted to be a rock star going to different continents. And it's so wonderful to see how you practice what you preach, you know, this concept of this awareness code and what you do to sort of set yourself up to be the best you can be. 
Second thing is obviously this whole idea that runs through all of my podcasts is the, the upbringing. People that, that you would never imagine would have survived and used those horrible experiences to become someone that wanted to make sure others never had it. In your case, your mom saying you can do anything and your dad with his bottle of wine watching planes fly all over and going, this used to be a lark and now there's 25,000 people. But the final thing that I'm going to take away is this concept of fellowship, that distilling this, the humanity down to the sense of doing it together. So divided, politicians pulling us apart, social media herding us into camps. And this concept of bringing people back as this fellowship, whether that's a small business owner and who they hire or the employees they bring in or a CEO, or as your case, what you're doing with big, maybe trying to groom the next generation of leaders. So for all of that and more, I am as a fan honored you're part of Chatter That Matters. But now after hearing your story, uh, truly admire what you're doing and the journey you're on. Thanks, Tony. Over the course of my career, where I found and built two advertising agencies and a research firm, I had the opportunity to work with clients across every sector, in the for-profit and non-for-profit. What I found was those guided by exceptional leadership, while they were in a class of their own. They were driven by a higher purpose, and in doing so, they attracted passionate people, and they treated their customers and suppliers as if they were part of their family. In fact, I got to the point in my career where I could tell the difference just by walking into the reception area. I would argue that experience exists in classrooms, in locker rooms, and around the family table. Great leadership matters. So what does it take to make a great leader? Vision, strategy, calmness, conviction, critical thinking, courage. The one that stands out the most for me is humility. Find that the most exceptional leaders are there to serve others, to help their customers and employees get to where they need, want, and deserve to go. Same holds true for my podcast. In this case, my range of perspective is now widened includes refugees who fought their way to come to this country, athletes who work tirelessly to own the podium, artists pursuing their craft, entrepreneurs, advocates for climate change, indigenous rights, accessibility and diversity. The ones that stand out are the ones that stand for you and me to better our society, our communities and our planet. And if you may, allow me to spend a moment talking about another example of leadership. And that's with RBC, who provides me the funding and encouragement to create a show about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. RBC has never asked me for anything in return. And when I invite them on at the end of the show to talk about what they're doing beyond banking to help Canadians thrive and communities prosper, they do so with that same level of humility. Stories about the heroes they help along the way. RBC's training ground, helping aspiring athletes own the Olympic podium. RBC First Stop, talking about the artists who have found an audience that their talent deserves. RBC Future Lines, this $500 million investment showing how they can help upskill today's youth for tomorrow's jobs. Tech for nature, mental health, accessibility and diversity, encouraging more women filmmakers, more women entrepreneurs, and so much more. Never about them, always about the people they help. So here's to all the leaders in the world who are making a difference to you and my life with your humility and with grace. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.